2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 and 16. The Lord, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. These two verses in Scripture are probably the most saddest commentary you'll ever read about Judah at the time of their fall. Last week we looked at the reasons for Israel, you know, the northern kingdom, uh, uh, their defeat and their capture. At the root, it was a, a it was at the root, it was a problem with sin. It wasn't a geopolitical change or social changes. It was just plain old simple sin. What did that that sin consist of? Well, practicing the worst kinds of idolatry and human sacrifice. They thought they could hide what they were doing from God, but we all know that you cannot hide things from God. He's everywhere, he sees everything, and he knows it all. It's impossible to hide it from him. Since God doesn't want to see anyone perish, in love, he sent messengers or prophets to tell the people, change your ways, come back to me. Well, they didn't want to listen. They didn't want to hear what they had to say. And when they listened to what these prophets were telling them, the more stubborn they got and the more in depth and sin they went. Well, you know, God's not patient forever. And he's pretty patient, way more so than we are. And he's really uh, very long-suffering when things aren't going the way that God knows that we should be doing. But when the time is right and we continue to ignore, he lets loose and with a vengeance. Their message is a warning against the sins that they were doing. The sins that corrupted his people. Things that he knows that they shouldn't be doing. And he told them from the very beginning when they got ready to cross, don't do as these people did. If you do, you're going to be in trouble. Well, he was angry with Israel because of what they did. And so he took that northern tribe and he sent them on their merry way to the Assyrian nations. And we don't really hear anything a whole lot about them coming back as a northern tribe. We do know that the individual tribes are still around because they assimilated here and assimilated there. Some of them went to Judah. So they're still around. But to become formed as another nation of ten tribes, that just ain't going to happen. only tribe that's left is Judah. And they got to see, if not here what the Assyrians did. They led their brothers away in the most humiliating way, naked with ropes tied around their necks that were laced through hooks through their lips. They knew this. They had the warning. And yet, well, they didn't change. They knew that the northern tribes weren't worshiping God the way that they should have, And yet they're going to fall into that same trap in a sense. 
committing the same sins with a little added for good measure. What were they supposed to do from the original, what God told them before they even, as they got to the base of Sinai, after they were rescued and led out of Egypt? Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6 and verse 8. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They knew what they were supposed to do. They were given fair warning. As we go through the history of Judah, like we did last week, I want you to compare what takes place with what we are witnessing in our own country today. When we get closer to the end, I'll throw a little added twist to that one in itself. The southern kingdom of Judah began with King Rehoboam. And well, he was the rightful heir to the throne because he was, well, Solomon's son. But he just veered off that path just a little bit. He wasn't a righteous king. And when he died, his son took over. And that was uh, Abijah. And he followed in his his father's footsteps. He was not exactly a righteous king. It wasn't until the 20th year of the country's ruling that we got a righteous king. We got somebody that was good. And his name was Asa. And well, he ruled uh, for about 41 years and was followed by his son, who was Jehoshaphat, and he was also a righteous king. And he reigned for 25. Well, from that point on, it was a catch-as-catch-can. You had some really bad ones, and you might have got one sprinkled in here and there. It was just a hodgepodge of kings. It was up and down. But you know, overall, there was a steady descent in spiritual darkness. Yeah, you had a sprinkling of a good one here and there that kind of reeled them back in a little bit. But for the most part, they were going downhill fairly quick. And it's a tragedy because this all started taking place after two kings that were really good. More important, it was a shame because God prospered the nation of Judah more than any other country in the world. It's where the temple was. That's where Shekinah glory lived. He lived among the people. Well, those people took their eye off of him and started doing things that they should not have been doing They started wallowing in their own pride. They started figuring that, well, we're pretty darn good. We're human beings, and well, we know what God wants, but you know what? I think I can make his rules a little better. And that's a terrible thing to think. The earliest prophet to speak out against Judah and his increasing apostasy was Joel. And he appeared on the scene uh, during the reign of King Uzziah. Now, 
That was almost 150 years into Judah's run. This would have been before the fall of Israel, and Judah had just experienced this great famine and a terrible locust infestation. And it made it really wasted the kingdom's agricultural production. They had no food. The nation was facing famine. Joel 1, verses 2 through 4. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. The land was laid bare. And Joel's message is a tough one. I didn't put it up here, but I'm going to read what it says. I'm going to add verse 5 and 6 to it. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Basically, he said, if you think the locust invasion is bad, just wait and see what God does and what he has in store for you if you don't repent. Boy, those are some really true words. He then warned what, that God was going to send an army that would do the greater damage than the locust. But you know, Joel 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning and rend your heart, not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. In the year of King Uzziah's death, God called Isaiah. Now we're all familiar with Isaiah. He's one of the most ones that everybody reads. He's the one that gave all those little wonderful prophecies and stuff about the coming of Christ, what he was going to experience in life, his death, and all of that. We're always going through Isaiah. He's one of the great prophets. One of his first assignments, the Lord said, you know what? Make an inventory of all the kingdom's sin. <clears throat> so he did. And the list appears in Isaiah 5, verses 7 through 23. But you see, I didn't want to list that one yet. Because... We're going to be told in a minute someone else is supposed to do the same thing. So that list that he made was a pretty alarming one. And it included injustice, greed, pleasure-seeking, blasphemy, moral perversion, intellectual pride, intemperance, and political corruption. Ooh, that sounds like today in our own country. That northern kingdom had a problem there too. But these were things that were taking place in Judah. Keep that list in mind. And it was compiled at the end of a 52-year reign of a great king. The cause of all this spiritual pollution was summed up by Isaiah in the following words. Isaiah 5.24 For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah pulled no punches when he was talking to Judah and the consequences of its sin. If the nation refused to pay, there's going to be a bad thing to pay. He pointed to what had happened to Israel, Isaiah 10 and 11. 
Shall I not do to Jerusalem and her images just as I have done to Samaria and her idols? Do you honestly think that if I didn't do something against Israel and those ten tribes, that northern kingdom, that I'm going to let you skate? He even prophesied what, that the Babylon Empire would be the one that comes and gets them. They would destroy Judah. And, they, and according to Isaiah 13, uh, verse 3, he referred to those Babylonians as, well, gosh, I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. Remember last week we said sometimes God uses human beings, not just nature. Well, let's see. He used the Assyrians to take away Israel and the northern tribes. Well, gosh, now he's saying, I'm going to use Babylon to take care of you if you don't repent. About 60 years after Isaiah's death, God called the prophet Jeremiah to take his place. And once again, the Lord instructed him like Isaiah, make a list of what they've done, of all their sins. And he does. But you know, as he went through, according to Jeremiah 5, verses 1 and 2, he roamed to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem and look now and take note and seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, if there is one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. When Jeremiah reported back, he reported all the same things that Isaiah did. But man, he added a couple of things to his list. There was religious corruption. Jeremiah 5, verses 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Jeremiah's final report, well, it contained three graphic summary of statements. The first was in Jeremiah 5.3. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Do we know what that looks like? Yeah, I think we do. Jeremiah appealed to God who saw and cared about truth among men. He prayed with a sense of amazement at the hardness and stubbornness of the heart among God's people. Repent, no. Turn, come back to God, no. Watch what I do now. We see that in today's times. He also mourned over the lack of repentance and brokenness over sin among the people of Jerusalem. This is God's city. His temple's right there. God lives in the temple and you refuse to repent. They were stricken, yet they weren't grieved. They were consumed, yet they weren't corrected. They didn't care. Despite all that they had and would endure, they refused to return to God. Second Jeremiah 5, verses 22 and 23. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea 
an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. Jeremiah used the illustration of the ocean and the sand. Think about that. Where God put the ocean, what is we we've got beaches. Can the oceans and stuff cross that beach and totally wipe out the land? No. Even when you have your hurricanes and it floods, where does the ocean go back to? Where it belongs. The sand holds it there. The analogy that he uses is is clear. The ocean cannot prevail against the sand. God's people will never prevail against God. Your rebellion against him is worthless. It's, It's pointless. If you can look at the ocean and say, it cannot overcome what I've put in place, what makes you think you can? Finally, Jeremiah 6.15. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. For all of Judah's many sins, they were not genuinely ashamed at all. They didn't care. Even if it pointed out, it could be something so horrible. Yeah, okay, whatever. Yeah, I did it. It's all good. God still loves me. Is that how people look at things today? Oh, I can still do these things because God still loves me. All I got to do is say I'm sorry and he'll forgive me. They had, it's like their, it's like their conscience was, was burned out or short-circuited or something. And even what we see today, the conscience, it's like, what is it that you don't get? Why can't the people comprehend? These gross behaviors the sins that with us done, can you not tell that's an affront to God? Well, yeah, but we're good people. We're really good people. We try our best. Well, I just don't see that as being what's needed to survive, to get where you need to be. Jeremiah, he began his, his ministry by preaching a powerful sermon in the temple in Jerusalem. Jeremiah 7, verses 2 through 7. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there is this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. 
He called upon the people to mend your ways, repent, turn back, and practice proper thinking and good judgment, or else this temple's going to be destroyed. He then asked them the most harsh question to try and snap them out of it, to wake up to reality. Jeremiah 7, verses 9 and 10. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations. Let that one sink in. This was a bold thing to say to these crowds at the temple gates. Yet they needed to know that they could not steal, murder, commit adultery, walk after other gods, thinking uh, the customs and rituals of the temple observance could cover it. Oh, I can do as I want. God loves me. All I have to do is say, God, I'm sorry. And he'll forgive it. And boy, I can just live my life the way I so choose. 2 Peter 2, verses 20 and 21. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. No, you can't live the way that you want to and think that God's going to, just going to arbitrarily forgive you and you can keep living in that sin. Jeremiah had in mind those that believed that their temple rituals and obligations gave them permission to continue to do so because, well, their sins are covered if I make my sacrifice. The religious leaders reacted in outrage. Don't they always? Don't they always get upset and angry? How dare you? You can't tell us what we're doing is wrong. They banned him from the temple. Since you don't want to think that we think and how we think, you can stay the heck away. Period. Don't come back. The people mocked him, claiming that God would never allow anyone to destroy the temple that was inhabited by his Shekinah glory. God can't be present amongst sin. What makes them think that he wants to be there? It's a slap in the face. And Jeremiah never let up on his call for repentance and his pronouncement of warnings. Just like John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Repent, for, well, who are you? All the prophets did the same thing. Repent, repent, repent before it's too late. And the people, guess what? They never relented from their hostile response. He was attacked by his brothers. He was imprisoned, beaten, put in stocks, thrown in a cistern, denounced by a false prophet, and constantly threatened with death. Even after enduring all of this, Jeremiah was very specific in his warnings. Jeremiah 20, verses 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself 
and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon. And he will carry them away as exiles to Babylon and will slay them with the sword. I will also give over all the wealth of this city and all its produce and all its costly things, even all the treasures of the kings of Judah. I will give over to the hand of their enemies and they will plunder them, take them away and bring them to Babylon. Not only did he specify the nation that would be, uh, that the nation would be destroyed by Babylon and that the people would be carried away to captivity, but he also told them, you're going to be captive for 70 years. Now, at this point in time, these people, this is about, about how long they normally live. So one whole generation is going to probably die in captivity. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed. I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. But all those warnings, you know, they fell on deaf ears. Jeremiah 17, verse 23. Yet they did not listen or incline their ears, but stiffened their necks in order not to listen or take correction. The struggle between Judah and Babylon was long and ultimately disastrous for Judah. Now, wasn't it? During the reign uh, of King Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Now, this, this whole Babylon thing, it, it took place in stages, three different stages for their total destruction. Three years later, the king, uh, Judah's king rebelled against Babylon and refused to pay the tribute. I'm not doing it anymore. Nebuchadnezzar quelled the rebellion and took prisoners back to Babylon. This is stage one, by the way. And this is when Daniel and his three fans went to Babylon under this captivity. Shortly after Jehoiakim's death, his 18-year-old son, Jehoiachin, became the king and reigned for three months, and he did evil in God's sight. During his reign, King Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city of Jerusalem. 2 Kings 24, verses 11 through 14. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. Jehoiachin and the king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon, and he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house and cut it in pieces, all the vessels of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord just as the Lord had said. Then he led away all into exile, all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. You see, you don't need the poor people. What are they going to do? They don't have the means to really fight back. This second deportation of the Jews to Babylon included the, the prophet Ezekiel, who later wrote the, uh, the book that bears his name. 
The nation of Judah continued to exist under Babylonian rule with King Zedekiah installed as, in Jerusalem as a puppet king. But you know, he too rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So he came with all his army once again. And he laid siege to Jerusalem. When the city fell, Nebuchadnezzar, according to 2 Kings 25, verses 9 through 12, he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Even every great house he burned with fire. So all of the army of the Chaldeans who were there with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Well, we're not going to take you because you can't fight back. So guess what? You're going to be basically the slaves to keep the vines and everything else. And the land kind of looking a little good. That northern kingdom was punished because they embraced the same occult practices that the Canaanite tribes before them did. They worshipped idols, sacrificed their children, and practiced witchcraft and soothsaying. Judah is being punished for following the same path as the northern kingdom. But add these things to the list. Injustice, greed, pleasure-seeking. Blasphemy, moral perversion, intellectual pride, intemperance and political corruption. Did you know that these are the same things that the people from Sodom and Gomorrah were doing, which attributed to their destruction? Ezekiel 16, verses 46 through 51. Now your older sister is Samaria, who lives north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lives south of you, is Sodom with her daughters that you have not merely walked in their ways or done according to their abominations, but as if that were too little, you acted more corruptly in all your conduct than they. As I live, declares the Lord of God, the Lord God, Sodom and your sister and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food and careless ease but she did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Furthermore, Samaria did not commit half of your sins, for you have multiplied your abominations more than they. Thus, you have made your sisters appear righteous by all your abominations which you have committed. You see, it wasn't just sexual perversion that they were destroyed, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for. It was more than that. Through the use of the prophets, God is illustrating in his own picturesque way that pride, you know, acting superior to and showing contempt for everyone else that you think is beneath you, the things that emanate from man in such a manner, is triggering his conduct. And it could be the, the very basics of the sin itself. Pride is a horrible thing. He mentions the accumulation of wealth, the form of treasures, silver, gold, chariots, and horses. 
He speaks of manufacturing the works of their own hands and the religion creating idols. He portrays things of sturdy power. God always mentions the oaks of Bashan and the things of grace and beauty. Gosh, normally when he says that, it's what? The cedars of Lebanon. He mentions military power in the form of high towers and fortified walls. God is always talking about large nations and refers to them as high mountains and small nations, hills that are lifted up. And commerce, you know, those are those beautiful ships that sail on the sea that brings goods. When we look at all this and bring it into our times within our country, I'm sure that you can think of a few examples that hit home. Like I stated last week, our country is really not that much different than these two kingdoms. But you know, here's that twist I was talking about. If I have to break this down even a little bit more, I would, could easily say that the northern kingdom was compared to the country. The southern kingdom is compared to the church. Think of the churches nowadays. Some of what we see in the, in the world and what they stand for and what they believe and what they promote. The last thing I want us to think about and compare is what was going through their minds at the time they were in captivity. You ready for this one? This would just blow your minds. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah gave us what was going through the minds of the people while they were in captivity. I'm going to use Ezekiel for this because I like how he just says it a little better than Jeremiah. Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 4. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you mean by using this proverb? concerning the land of Israel, saying, The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The souls of the father as well as the souls of the son is mine. The soul who sins will die. God spoke to Israel regarding a proverb that was going around at that time. It was commonly used among the Jewish people during Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day. This was such a popular proverb in that day that it's one that, like I said, Jeremiah quoted in Jeremiah 31, verses 29 and 30. And in a similar form in Lamentations 5, 7. The proverb was a protest, a complaint. The idea was the present generation was being unjustly punished. How many of us look at that point of view today? I still think that this is a common proverb, maybe not using those exact same words, but they still use it. I am innocent of it all. I do not sin. I have not sinned but yet I'm being punished for what my parents and grandparents did. Hmm. According to that proverb, fathers didn't get punished for it. We are. And I really think that that's still being used today. The proverb is an immediate attempt to escape from responsibility for sin and to protest against punishment. They, the people, they, they use the proverb or some form of it, attempt to excuse God of doing wrong by twisting, by twisting 
what he said in Exodus 20, verses four through six. You shall not not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. They're trying to twist these words around. The second commandment of the cumulative disaster that mounts, it, it says it, it, it things mount up. <clears throat> if you don't change your way, if you continue to do what your fathers did and your grandfather did and their great-great-grandfather gone and on, guess what? If you still walk and do the things the way that they did, you're going to get punished. They failed, just like the people of today, to see the force of the words. Those that hate me and those that love me. They believe that if they individually love God, they would not be suffering. The penalty for their father's sins. Both in Ezekiel and Jeremiah declare, though, via God's direction, that each generation is responsible for themselves. It's up to you to change what happened. If you can see that something's going on, it's up to you to change that path. We have individual responsibility. It's up to you whether you want to continue down that way. How many of us have sat there and said, my father and my mother were like this, and by golly, when I have kids, I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to raise them the way I see fit. Because I don't think that they raised me the way they should have. And what happens? We fall in the same trap. We are just like our parents. It's up to us to change that way. Proverbs were a popular form of media or messaging in the ancient world. And through his prophet, God commanded that this false message be exposed, answered, and spoken against. Just because a proverb was was popular didn't make it true. Think about social media today. How many people quote social media as the gospel? Happens all the time. We are only responsible for ourselves. I'm not responsible for you and you're not responsible for me. And God states this all throughout scriptures. You will be punished for what you do. You are responsible for what you do, what you say and your actions. Remember what I had had us repeat numerous times a couple of weeks ago? Terry, I can't remember if you and Tony were here. I don't know, if Don, if you were here either. You may have been. You may have been. I know happened. Everybody else was. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you know, I can't confess my father's sins. I'm not in his brain. I'm only in my brain. And sometimes that can be confusing enough as is. I believe 
that the people were in denial about their lives just as our own country is about hers. I refuse personally to blame my punishment that's taking place on my father. If I go into captivity, if I'm punished for something horrible that's going on in the country, guess what? I'm part of the country. What does God say? It rains both on the good and evil. You're part of the country. You might have to suffer some of the same consequences because you're part of the country. The people are going to be led away and they're going to be gone for a long time. In our years, a long time. Let's go to prayer.